You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. And shivers down your spine Shrieking skulls will shock your soul Seal your doom tonight Spooky, scary skeletons Speak with such a screech You'll shake and shudder in surprise When you hear these zombies Hello and welcome to Oh No Lit Class The podcast that was given a dark prophecy By a trio of mysterious witches On a barren hillside That we would be the king of all podcasts As soon as Lady Oh No Lit Class Convinced us to murder Joe Rogan not Joe. Uh, maybe. Not Mr. Fear Factor. <laughs> no one knows him as that anymore. Um, Not Mr. UFC. I'm Megan. I might be Joe Rogan, because I'm RJ, which is Joe Rogan, but reversed. Ooh, I'm like evil Joe Rogan. Which is perfect, because it's spooky. Happy Halloween, basically, in a couple days. Ooh. No, I don't. I don't like the vibe on that at all. <laughs> oh. <laughs> in in this our final creeptacular October episode, we will be covering a novel voted on by our patrons. Yes, this is a privilege that can be yours by going to Patreon.com/OnoLickClass and pledging the low, low price of three dollars a month, and also getting bonus content and a personalized letter from me and RJ that. I will potentially draw a dick on. Okay, plug over. Uh, the book we're talking about today is another tale of gothic horror, because... Well, because that's an easy target for Halloween. I don't know what to tell you. It's Rebecca, by Dame Daphne du Maurier. A tale as old as time. A wealthy widower going through a midlife crisis remarries, and now wife number two is living in the shadow of the disapproving ghost of wife number one. Possibly literally. Also, wife number one's psychotic housekeeper is also there, and for sure out to get wife number two by any means short of pushing her out a window. Very much literally. Tale as old as time. She never really went by, Dame. Okay. Well, you called her. Well, that's you what You should it's... respect her wishes. Okay. Mm. That's what it says on the cover of the book. That ain't a first publication. Check your privilege of being alive. And be able to speak for yourself. Check your privilege of being alive. Oh, Daph can't be here today to tell you how wrong you are. Daph, huh? And how would she feel about that, I wonder? Daph. Daph. Daffy. So, in its time, like when the book was first published, a lot of critics refused to take it seriously as a capital N novel that would have any sort of, like, staying power. But it has actually never gone out of print since its initial publication. And it won the National Book Award for Favorite Novel of 1938. And in 2003, uh, the novel was listed at number 14 on the UK survey of The Big Read. Uh, In 2017, it was voted as the UK's favorite book of the past 225 years. Um, Other novels on that list were To Kill a Mockingbird, Pride and Prejudice, and Jane Eyre. So, you know... That's a good list, considering critics at the time were like, mm, this book's bullshit. Uh, RJ, I realize this is a long shot, but did you know anything about Rebecca? Nope. Yeah, me neither, actually. P- people have mentioned it to me since starting the show as like a book we should cover. 
but pri- prior to Oh No Lit Class, I never heard of this. Nope, I never came across it. <laughs> yeah, I got nothing. But, you know, before we can head to the mysterious and potentially haunted halls of the Manderley Estate, we need to learn about the woman who wrote them into existence. RJ? Daphne du Maurier, a.k.a. Dame Daphne du Maurier, a.k.a. Lady Brownie, was born May 13th, 1907, and died April 19th, 1989. May 13th is a stacked holiday day. Choose whichever one speaks to you the most. National Apple Pie Day, National Fruit Cocktail Day, National Receptionist Day, and of course, National Hummus Day. Of course. April 19th, a bit weaker. National Garlic Day. What's your problem with garlic? Well, that's the only thing got going for it. Well, the yeah, other days are stacked. Don't need nothing else. That's not true. Daph was born in London to actor-slash-manager Sir Gerald de Maurier and stage actress Muriel Beaumont. Her parents were semi-big deals. Her dad, a particularly big deal. You see, Daddy Daph had a cigarette brand named after him. While that's not necessarily postal stamp big, it's still something. An entire brand of cigarettes? Yeah. That's pretty big. (laughs) Spoiler alert. He died of cancer. (laughs) I do not think... I shouldn't laugh at that. (laughs) I do not think it is conclusively linked to the cigarettes, but uh, I doubt it helped. There's probably a correlation. I know. It'd be like your dad is Joe Cool. (laughs) I'll take a pack of me. (laughs) Take a pack of bees. <laughs> In addition to her notable parents, her grandfather was the cartoonist and writer George de Maurier, who created the character of Spengali, which is where the word that refers to a person with evil intent dominates, manipulates, and controls another comes from. Oh, wow. Yeah. Huh. How about that? In short, Daph was born into a rather connected family. Daph was the middle daughter of three girls that the couple would have. Given her parents' line of work, Daph met many actors and actresses during her childhood. This led to her interest in telling stories and getting to know artists in the field of storytelling. In particular, one actress of note that Daph met is the actress Tallulah Bankhead. What a name. I've definitely heard that name before, which because you don't forget a name like Tallulah Bankhead. <laughs> Daph was in her preteen years and Tallulah being five years older was a teenager. Daph referred to Tallulah as, quote, the most beautiful creature I had ever seen. I took it upon myself to follow down this lead. While I'm not sure I agreed with the absoluteness of Daph's statement, I do think we have our first entry to our 10-year war-hot crew that comes directly from one of the authors we cover. Oh? Tolua, congrats on your acceptance into this prestigious group of people to be deemed 10-year war-hot. Do you have a picture at the ready? No. Oh, well, You got no. a fucking computer. Normally you do that. Well, every time that we've encountered someone who you think is just, like, super ugly, you've had a picture ready to show me. <laughs> yeah, whatever. No actors. Whoa, she got murder in her eyes. Maybe. We'll take it. But, uh, most beautiful creature she ever seen. Yep. It's interesting phrasing. I always hate it when the creature, it's just weird. It's always with the woman, too. You ever hear a man referred to as a, as a, a creature? Like, the most handsome creature. Well, I was going to say one. You usually don't refer to men as beautiful, just in general. Well, that's why I went to handsome, but you really hear men referred to as creatures. 
What a handsome Neanderthal. Well, it's the same thing when they refer to a woman as, like, she's a very sexual creature, which makes it sound like there's some kind of, like, oh, God, the sexual creature, it's broken loose. Well, I know where women come from. It's I saw fl- under the it's, skin. It's flapping at you. This, whoa, <laughs> what? No, wait, what? That's ScarJo. We are not, no, we are not pursuing that line of inquiry. Continue. As for Daph. She was not initially as smitten by literature. She certainly did not like literature that was being published in the early 20th century. Instead, what won her over were the works of the Bronte sisters. In particular, Daph began with Wuthering Heights and soon was tearing through all of the Bronte's novels and poetry. Upon reflection later in life, Daph admitted that she was not very interested in reading modern novels, but returned again and again to her favorites, which included the works of the Brontes. Daph internalized the Brontes' works, the Brontes wrote of several imaginary worlds, such as Glastown, Ingria, and Gondol. Daph began to say she was going to Gondol when she wanted to make believe or write a bit on her own. It is strange that out of all the authors in the world that the privileged Daph was drawn to the most were the Bronte sisters, because as we covered in our episode that touched on the Brontes, the Brontes were very much not privileged and lived in some rather miserable conditions. In fact, the Brontes as a family were unhealthy because it turns out their drinking water was poisoned by the drippings from the nearby cemetery. Mmm. <laughs> dead were, body soup. They were drinking that corpse water, which yep. you're gonna bring that up for Halloween. <laughs> Delicious and nutritious, or noxious and deadly. What biology decide? Why, don't forget, all the Brontes died before turning 40. Eesh. Meanwhile, on Daff World, the family bought a holiday home in Cornwall when Daff was 13. This became Daff's favorite home that the family would own during her lifetime. She would spend a lot of her time at the Cornwall home and even use it as a location in multiple works. Cornwall was also the place where Daff learned some things about her sexuality. She knew she was always a tomboy. She said later in life that her father clearly wanted a son. And well, she was pretty close to that in the kind of kid that she was. Daff was known to dress in shorts and ties throughout her adolescence. She spent a lot of time making believe she was a boy by the name of Eric Avon, her alter ego, who also just happened to be the captain of a local cricket team. If you're going to make yourself an alter ego, you may as well make it the big man on campus. Yeah, I mean, why not? Daff wrote retrospectively about herself that she felt like she had two personas, one being her female self and the other a male lover, who she said came out in her writing. The idea of transgender was not exactly part of the everyday vocabulary in the early 20th century. Despite that, literary critics claimed that Daff felt that she was a boy very much in love and stuck in the wrong body at different points in her life. At the same time, she was born a woman and committed to playing that role. Was she playing the role for herself, her family, for both? No. At any given time of her life? It's unclear. But the fact that she was surrounded by people acting for a living, it was not exactly a foreign idea to her. According to biographer Margaret Foster, Daff referred to herself as a, quote, half-breed, female on the outside, quote, with a boy's mind and boy's heart from a young age. Speaking of foreign, her family had an interesting way to refer to Daff's sexuality. Moments of heterosexuality were referred to as going to Cairo, with moments that were not heterosexual were referred to those Venetian moments, or excuse me, those Venetian tendencies. What? When she was being hetero, excuse me. When she was being hetero, she went to Cairo, and when she was not being hetero, she was exhibiting her Venetian tendencies. Huh. Being a little Venetian tonight, are we? I see. I, I like that. Uh, like that, they had to specify the the heteroness 
Yeah. The heterosexuality wasn't being at home, necessarily. That was also going somewhere else. Yeah, they, they <laughs> oddly exoticized the heteroness. <laughs> yeah. Not clear why. <laughs> well, when she was 18, while staying in Cornwall, the vacation home, Daph had her supposed first physical expression of going to Cairo. She was there with Carol Reed, the future director of The Third Man, and supposedly Daph's first real crush. Reed was one year older than Daph, and while two teenagers in a swanky vacation home together, yeah, word is they danced like the Egyptians between the sheets. <laughs> Third Man's a good movie. Yes. Unrelated to, but you know. Also, what do you mean you say, what are you saying yes? You didn't watch it. You walked out because you were bored. I'm pretty sure I watched it. Where did I walk out to? Well, you left the room. Don't lie to people to seem cultured. Aside from staying in Cornwall to go to Bone Town, Egypt, she hung around to write in solitude, <laughs> much to her parents' chagrin. Her family tried to dissuade her from pursuing writing. They found the profession to be below her and the family, but there was no convincing her otherwise. How is writing any lesser than, like, acting or something? Because I, I feel like people would consider at the time acting to be, like, a lesser profession for rich people. But they were acting on celluloid. <laughs> a profession. Oh. Fancy. <laughs> In 1931, at 24, Daph published her first novel, The Loving Spirit, which takes its name from an Emily Bronte poem. In fact, each part of the book is preceded by a different Bronte quote. The novel took two years to finish and focuses on the trials and tribulations of four generations of a family named the Coombs, who lived in Daph's favorite, Cornwall. While the novel was fictionalized, its depictions of Cornwall were very accurate and quite stunning to some. The depictions were so stunning that shortly after publication, one major Frederick Browning read the novel and was so taken by the descriptions of Cornwall that he needed to see it for himself. After touring the coastline, he left his boat moored in the area for the winter and returned the next spring to collect it. While there, he heard that Daph, the author of the book that had impressed him so much, was in town and he invited her to his boat. The two apparently hit it off quite well and a romance followed. Within weeks, he proposed to her, but she rejected his ass specifically saying that she did not believe in marriage. It was then explained to Daph that belief is all well and good and everything, but he was a decorated World War I veteran, a major in Her Majesty's Army, and while him living with an unmarried woman, going to Cairo and whatnot, was not a good look for the outside world. In short, it was explained to Daph that their living together without marriage would be disastrous for the major's career. Daph responded by proposing to Browning, who accepted. Hmm. They were married in a simple ceremony, July 19, 1932, about three months after meeting each other in honeymoon on the high scenes. Daph was 25 and the major was 36. Eventually, the two would have three children, two daughters, Tessa and Flavia, and son <laughs> Christian, who was also known as Kitz. Where does Flavia fit in here with, uh, like, Tessa, Christian, Flavia. normal, and <laughs> Flavia? Honey, honey. I'm thinking about having a kid, and I want it, or I want its name to rhyme with a female body part. <laughs> For, you know, when I get these Venetian tendencies. <laughs> this labia got a flavia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Despite being married, Daph continued to publish under her original name, at least for the time being. She would not start publishing under her married name until 14 years later when she was 39. But more importantly, those early days of marriage and baby making did not deter Daph's writing. She published novels in quick succession before taking some time to publish a novel that is the focus of today's episode, Rebecca, in 1938 when she was 31. This was Daph's big break. It was an immediate hit. The UK adored the book. 
that adoration is still going strong today. And then Megan already listed all these things. Rebecca was listed number 14 on the nation's best love novel on the BBC's 2000 survey, The Big Read. <laughs> on this side of the pond, the year the book was published, Staff won the National Book Award for Favorite Novel of 1938, voted by members of the American Booksellers Association. The book sold nearly 3 million copies between 1938 and 1965, and the novel has never gone out of print. She followed up the success of Rebecca with Frenchman's Creek, Hungry Hill, The King's General, The Parasites, and My Cousin Rachel over the next dozen years. If you really think about it, those are really porn-sounding names. Yeah, a little bit. Frenchman's Creek, Hungry Hill, The King's General. Getting a little gay there. Well, so maybe more romance novel -y. And My Cousin Rachel. Ay. I think you're trying to force this. Well, many of these works were adapted into plays or movies, much like Rebecca. During this time, Daph took her turn at writing short fiction and nonfiction as well. One of her nonfiction books focused on... Branmo Bronte, the Bronte brother, who was also a writer as well as a painter, who always seemed to get the short end of the stick. Always the Bronte sisters, never the Bronte siblings. You see, Daph is an equal opportunity Bronteist. It's true. We never hear about old Branwell looking out for him. Yeah. As her career wore on, her personal life began to weigh on her and her career more. Hubby Major Browning, former Olympic bobsledder, decorated World War I vet, was part of the high circles in the UK, and that was even before he served in World War II. He eventually rose through the British Army to earn the rank of Lieutenant General, which is immediately below General. So, you know, kind of high in that organization, all in all. Just to give you an idea of where his career went beyond World War II, upon the recommendation of Lord Mountbatten, the father of Philip Mountbatten, aka Prince Philip, he became Queen Elizabeth's Comptroller and Treasurer. Now, if you're a fan of history, or the show The Crown, or even the current day tabloids, you likely know that Windsor Castle is not exactly the most progressive of places, and this weighed on Major Browning and Daph. After her husband started working for the Queen almost 16 years into their marriage, she began to publish under the name Daphne du Maurier Browning, or Lady Browning. She was eventually elevated to the station of Dame Commander of the British Empire, Holy shit. Kind of like being knighted and could have lived life as Dame Browning, but she never went by that title and actually made no mention of it to anyone, not even her kids, until a newspaper printed the news of her ascension. Her kids thought it was silly to hide it because they thought it was all funny. With all these names and titles, she felt she had to play the role. In a letter to her close friend Ellen Doubleday, who was said to have spurned Daft's prior sexual advances, Daft says, quote, it's people like me who have careers who really have bitched up the old relationship between men and women. Women ought to be soft and gentle and dependent. Disembodied spirits like myself are all wrong. Daph also wrote that she had locked her boy self, her alter ego, celebrated cricketer, Eric Avon, quote, in a box. Sometimes when she was alone, she would open the box and, quote, let the phantom out, who she now realized was neither a boy or girl, but disembodied spirit, and she'd let him out of the box to dance in the evening when there was no one to see. Oh my gosh, that's really sad. Daph struggled to come to terms with her bisexuality, never really finding peace with it. She knew she disliked being lumped in with what was being called lesbianism at the time, saying, By God and by Christ, if anyone should call that sort of love by that unattractive word that begins with L, I'd tear their guts out. Okay, so that seems like some weird personal 
shit of the time that she would need to work out. Yes. And while Daff struck out with Ellen Doubleday, she did have an intimate relationship with actress Gertrude Warrens, who starred in such films as Mimi and The Glass Menagerie, and Broadway plays like The King and I and Pygmalion. The courtship between Gertrude and Daff was mostly carried out through letters during the late 1940s when Daff was in her 40s and Gertrude was in her 50s, as Gertrude was mainly stationed in New York and Daff in England. Apparently, the two felt quite the connection to each other, so much so that Gertrude told her husband that she felt she belonged in England with Daff. Daff never left her husband because she wanted to be the dutiful wife. Unfortunately, Gertrude died in 1952 before the relationship could have grown further. It was Gertrude's husband who spoke of the relationship between the two women later in life. I do have to add, because it's a weird thing that pops up a few times in this tale, before having her thing with Daff, Gertrude may have had a thing with Daff's dad. Oh? Daff's dad also wrote at one point how he would have liked to have been Ellen Doubleday's son before Daff made her intention with Ellen Doubleday known. And then she wrote letters how she would have liked to have been Ellen's daughter and her dad's son. I don't know. There's weird stuff here. There's also one rumor I came across that does not seem to have any backing that a, a biographer believes that Daph may have been sexually assaulted by her dad, or there may have been something more consensual, but I cannot find anything to back that up beyond one biographer's best guess. The other stuff we have letters on. So yeah. Oh, daddy. I always wish I could have been your son. Mm-mm. And that woman's daughter. Mm. And you want to be her son. Mm-hmm. That would make us siblings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> would have made it a interesting family tree. Mm-mm. Also, how would you feel that you have these two people like kind of pining for you? One the dad and one the daughter, and they both want to be your kid? That's where it gets, that's the, because like... Hey, Megan, did I ever tell you? I wish I was your son. After the correspondence with Gertrude, it seems that Daph locked up that side of herself and remained committed to her husband and family and never stepped out on either. She continued to work and published and spent most of her time in Cornwall. She did fend off accusations of plagiarism, specifically concerning Rebecca. When Rebecca was published in Brazil, a Brazilian critic and the Brazilian public pointed out startling similarities between Rebecca and the 1934 book, The Successor, which was written by Carolina Nabucco which was published four years before Rebecca was written. It was learned that Nabucco's English publisher was also Daff's, which is where Nabucco claims Daff would have gained access to her book. United Artists, the, the distributor of the Hitchcock film of Rebecca, tried to get Nabucco to sign a document saying that the similarities between the works were coincidental, which many people think they are, using some overarching tropes, but she refused to sign such a document. A similar thing played out with Daff's short story, The Birds, which was also used as the basis of a Hitchcock film and was claimed to have been lifted from Frank Baker's novel, The Birds, which was written 16 years prior. Baker thought about suing, but was told that Universal Studios in this case would spend him into the ground. Daph is remembered for her works, the adaptations for her works, and lived off those successes the rest of her days, enjoying her time with her family and her home. Daph died April 19, 1989, aged 81, while living in Cornwall, where she had her ashes sprinkled. An interesting person and an interesting body. The end. Lot going on there. Ooh, it's a 
Spooky ghost Megan telling you that this episode is... Yeah, no, um, that's already worn out. It's welcome. You know who will never wear out their welcome, though? Our wonderful, beautiful, amazing, hauntingly... Spooktastic... Shut up, it's been a long month. Patrons! help support the show and make it possible for us to bring it to you and and keep making it including our newest member jennifer hill thank you jennifer this is a patreon voted episode and i already plugged our patreon at the top of the episode so i won't go through that whole spiel again but we love our patrons and they are wonderful and the best so thank you and you know who's also the best this episode's Pod Pals, the Direcast. Direcast is a weekly actual play RPG podcast that they play like a whole bunch of different tabletop role-playing games from regular stuff like D&D to other stuff that I don't know because I don't really know role-playing games. What I do know is that these guys are just like real cute and fun to listen to. I always get get a little worried when I say that about shows where it's like, they're real cute that that sounds very denigrating. I don't know if it's just because I'm like getting old now. Birthday's in less than two weeks and I think that might just be a side effect of becoming a very old person that everyone just sounds cute to me now and not in like a bad way because I'm just older than everyone now. And so when I say that they all sound cute, it's that these are a bunch of people who clearly very much enjoy each other's company. So listening to them definitely feels like you're hanging out with friends, which is nice in these troubling and quarantined times. Simulated auditory friendship. It's a good time. Check them out. Hey, you there. Do you like RPGs? Well then, have I got the podcast for you. Direcast is an actual play role-playing game podcast featuring six people who are definitely friends playing the games you love and the games you're gonna want to try for your entertainment. There's a bit of... Rapid destructive invention. Quite a lot of... Salutations and up yours and your husband is a fruit. And a surprising amount of... Death for the colony! We've got adventure. You are locked in a box with lasers all around. Heroes. Bobog Alcaruk! Villains. Finally, I shall be crowned as no one before has been crowned. And whatever this is. You make me play riffs! You make me play riffs! So, search for Diacast on your podcatcher of choice and treat yourself to an hour of shenanigans once a week. We promise you won't regret it. Ocean Pass, fantastic. <laughs> Rebecca, as it is Rebecca. Danvers. So the narrator slash protagonist of the novel does not have a name, which is a very purposeful move on Demaria Demaria's part. She's poor. Her parents are dead. She has basically zero self-esteem. We're going to talk about this a lot. Essentially, she doesn't have much in the way of an identity, which is part of what makes her so appealing to DeWinter as the future Mrs. DeWinter Part 2, the sequel. But, you know, we'll get there. Uh, So yeah, there's a very clear and specific narrative reason that she doesn't have a name, but much like the governess in The Turn of the Screw, for the purposes of this summary, we gotta call her something. RJ, any suggestions? We, we called the governess in The Turn of the Screw uh, Cher. We, we could just keep that tradition going. 
make sure the designated nameless protagonist uh, name, unless you want to call her something else. Daph. I mean, honestly, she might identify more with Rebecca. Well, depends on the part of her life. And that's, as we'll talk about. Yeah, that's true, or, actually. She thinks her <laughs> husband starts to play the role of Rebecca in their marriage in real life. She's a lot of people in this book, actually. Now, now that I've listened to her biography, there's a lot of weird personal shit in here. We call her Cher. All right. Or have a the beautiful creature. <laughs> TBC. The beautiful creature. DBC is no, a bit Cher. of a mouthful. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll keep we'll keep Cher going. If you want context for that, go back and listen to our episode on the turn of the screw. I don't remember what number that one is, but. Uh, The episode title is The Haunted Babysitter's Club. So the novel opens with Cher saying the famous opening line, Last night I dreamt I went to Mandalay again. Mandalay Bay? Yes. Nice. Yeah. Casinos, baby. (laughs) Oh, yeah. She was playing the slots. She was playing the slots, all right. (laughs) She sure was. Uh, People cream their jeans over this opening line. Oh, I thought over playing the slots. (laughs) I mean, that too. They win big, baby. Uh, it's written in iambic hexameter for whatever that's worth. So, you know, it's, it's poetical, I suppose. Okay. I, I know. When I read that, I'm like, okay, neat. But it's, it's a big deal to people, I guess. I don't know. Anyway, she talks about how in her dreams she sees Mandalay, a big old fuck-off fancy house. But in the darkness, under the eerie moonlight, it's been taken over by plants and ivy and shit, and it looks all haunted and weird, and she thinks it looks like a tomb. And when she thinks about Manderley, when she's awake, it's happy memories about it being a nice house that's not haunted to all fuck. But also, she doesn't talk about it at all with the person she's with, because they're far away from Manderley, in a hotel. And it's kind of a sticky subject, because also the house doesn't belong to them anymore. In fact, it doesn't exist anymore. What can this mean? James Bond ate the house. What? what? And it folded into a singularity. It disappeared. Oh, it's a... Okay. It's a Simpsons reference. (laughs) No, it's a James Bond reference. James Bond ate the house. It's like, what the... Remington Steele ate the house. <laughs> it's, a, it's a treehouse of horror. Yeah. Where it's a smart house and it has the voice of Pierce Brosnan. Remington Steele. And the house implodes and, and folds in on itself. It was like a bad dream. <laughs> James Bond eats the house. <laughs> um, I mean, maybe. Find out. At the end of the book. Pretty sure that's what Quantum of Solace was about. Yep. <laughs> Daniel Craig eats a house. <laughs> it was a quantum particle. Daniel Craig is James Bond in Quantum of Solace, where he will eat a house. Why is such a strong jawline? <laughs> it's true. Um, yeah, you'll you'll find out at the end of the book. That's how she keeps you in, you see. Like, you know, fuck this mysterious Rebecca character. I gotta know what happens to this house. Does it take off? Does it feed itself? Does Daniel Craig show up? <laughs> Does he eat the house? Does it blow away in a storm? Did it never exist? Is it a dollhouse? Is it inside of a globe? Snow it, globe? Is it in another timeline? In a, a cave? In an alternate universe? Oh, in it's Germany? an allegory. Yeah. Allegory of the house. Pluto's allegory of the house? Yeah, Pluto's. <laughs> Pluto's allegory of the house. It's a dog house. 
<laughs> Why are you like making? That's what it's. It's Puna. <laughs> Fuck you! Damn it! I was so sure. I was so sure. I didn't even second guess myself. <laughs> I was full of so much unearned confidence. <laughs> anyway. Share details. That I always share Pluto's algorithm with my students. <laughs> Consider the mouse wearing shorts. But why? <laughs> Come, children, let's all sit cross-legged on the floor before me. As we talk about the mouse in red shorts. No, no, it makes sense because, like, think about it. Why does one dog, why does Pluto live as a dog when there's another dog walking around wearing pants and having a job and stuff, and, and is that's Goofy. Pluto doesn't know that he's living in the cave and Goofy is outside the cave. It's called evolution. I'm actually onto something here. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. called evolution. <laughs> now, I'll ask you, Meg, which one's in the cave, though? Oh, is Pluto the one who's really free because he's free from the constraints of society? Yeah. Goofy's got, like, a mortgage and shit. And a kid? <laughs> and he gets hurt a lot? Wait, are and you he has to deal with sadness? Are you saying Pluto doesn't get hurt because he's a dog? Not in the same way, not emotionally. Ah. Goofy has to... One, his name's Goofy. And he, he internalizes a lot of that. Who, <laughs> yuck? We need to start this story. Anyway, share details that she and her currently unnamed male companion are definitely totally happy together and have no secrets, except for the secret memories of Manderly that she doesn't talk about because they make her man sad. She says their lives used to be much more exciting and fancy, but also terrifying. And it's okay that things are dull because they're definitely happy. Super happy. And free. Free of frightening things, like a woman named Mrs. Danvers, and the sound of a different woman walking around the ruins of Manderley. Wait, yep. wait, wait, I hear her. Oh no. Wait, what? <laughs> I just assumed you were gonna be playing fucking Unsolved Mysteries again, I've gotten so used to that. <laughs> it's the ghost! No, Cher's not the ghost. She's the one telling the story. Keep your shit straight. <laughs> no, that's what she's saying to Rebecca. Or maybe it's early Cher. <laughs> well, no, this is it, when she's- It's she... the first of winter. <laughs> <laughs> Cher thinks about what a, a wimpy little baby she was when she first came to Manderley, which, I mean, she was afraid of ladies and the sound of different ladies walking. So, I mean, yeah, I guess. And that means it's time for us to journey to the past of the main story. That's, those are my flashback noises. They're very good. Baby flashback Cher is just 21 years old and is poor and mousy and in homemade clothes and shy and poor. Did I mention she's poor? Poor. Yeah. She's working as a lady's companion for this obnoxious rich lady named Mrs. Van Hopper. I'm the same thing. Y'all can hire me. I was a hit in Boca Raton. Oh yeah. All the uh, retirees loved you. 
Her, her job is literally just to follow this woman around on vacation in Monte Carlo as like a combination servant slash paid BFF because I guess Mrs. Van Hopper doesn't have any friends to hang out with but also wants someone she could order around and make do things for her which is probably why she doesn't have any friends. They're at a fancy hotel, they go down to lunch, and Mrs. Van H is like, Oh man, there's no cool famous people here for me to harass. Oh wait, there's Maxime de Winter. He's the owner of Manderley, which is a big deal for some reason. Also, his wife just died. He needs to meet me. He won't be able to say no? Literally. She traps him in a conversation about her cousin and also verbally bullies Cher so he can see that Mrs. Van H is a fancy lady of means. Du Murray seems to like be painting it that like Mrs. Van H is that kind of like nouveau riche where she's all money and no class. Whereas Maxime de Winter, he's old money, very classy. He's extremely polite to both Mrs. Van H and the narrator, despite the situation that he very clearly does not want to be in. Um, he tries to ask Cher if she likes Monte Carlo, and Mrs. Van H is like, Don't ask her stuff! She doesn't have opinions! She's poor! But later on, a note is delivered to their suite, while Mrs. Van H is busy, and it's addressed to Cher, from Max de Winter, all like, Oof, sorry about that awkward shit earlier. And she's all hard eyes over the fact that he spelled her name right, because almost nobody ever does. Which is a fun joke to play on your readers. <laughs> They spell it S-H-A-R-E. Ah. <laughs> then uh, Mrs. Van H conveniently gets sick with fever, leaving the door open for a solo encounter with the mysterious and handsome Max, who's 42. He's literally twice her age, which, I mean, it makes sense. He's already had a first marriage, you know, but I just, I just wanted to get that out there. Anyway, they end up having lunch together, and, like, she's in awe of him because he's fancy, and she bought a postcard with a picture of Manderley on it when she was a kid. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's a fucking house. I don't get it. I don't, is this, like, I don't know if it's, like, a, an English thing? Yes. <laughs> it's also a daft thing. House. Can have a crush on a house. Yeah. House. The curves. House sexual. The doors. <laughs> the dressings. Oh. <sighs> The buttresses. The slots. <laughs> he tells her that she has a lovely and unusual name, which feels like she's just fucking with us at this point. It's like, I'm not gonna tell you what it is. Second wife. <laughs> 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 and Cher's uh, just like, well, my dad was a lovely and unusual guy before he died horribly of pneumonia. And then mom died shortly thereafter. I'm sorry, is this bummer lunch conversation? I'm really bad at people. And Max is like, nah, I'm into it. I feel like we're the same. We're both alone in the world. I mean, I guess I have a sister and a grandma, but you know, basically the same. And Cher's like, you also have your big fuck off house and I'm super homeless, but sure. And Max is like, uh, but big houses can be lonely. And then he takes her for a drive to distract her, like you do with a puppy. They have a good time, but then he becomes sad and distant and is probably thinking about his dead wife. Lame. Buzzkill. But he gets over it, and they spend the next few days driving around, hanging out, and having a pretty good time. Max just won't talk about himself at all. Eventually, Cher's like, why are you even hanging out with a poor, ugly, shy, lame, poor loser like me? All I know about you is that you're rich, and you own Manderley, and your wife is super dead. And honestly, that's all you need to know to, like, connect the dots, which line up to spell midlife crisis. 
And Max just says that he came to Monte Carlo to forget. And that's what Cher has helped him do. So you know that thing that I just said. Mrs. Van H recovers, and out of nowhere, she abruptly tells Cher to pack up the room because they're leaving for New York the next day. And she should be psyched because there's lots of poor people there, so she'll be able to hook up with some nice, dirty, underprivileged boys. Mrs. Van Hooper is a delight. And Cher cries, and that morning runs to Max to tell him goodbye. And he's like, okay, but what if you came to Manderley instead? And Cher's like, what, like as your secretary or maid or stable boy? And Max is just like, no, this is a marriage proposal. I'm asking you to marry me. Specifically, he says, I'm asking you to marry me, you little fool. <laughs> you little fool. Hey, he's like, I hope his uh, self-esteem issues aren't going to be a significant plot issue moving forward. And then Cher replies to that saying that like he doesn't really want to marry her. He just feels sorry for her. You know, it's one of those pity marriage proposals that people do. <laughs> that you so often hear of. I know, Megan. Ow. <laughs> so yes, the self-esteem issues are going to be a significant plot issue moving forward. But hey, no more Mrs. Van H. Sure, she thinks Cher's making a big mistake and won't be able to handle the pressures of being Mrs. De Winter Part 2, the sequel. But what does she know? She's just jealous. It's Manderly time! And so we fast forward past the marriage and the honeymoon to the arrival at Manderly, and Cher's still wearing her poor people clothes, and Max is like, eh, whatever, it doesn't matter. I'm sure you'll be able to establish dominance over the servants with your naturally forceful personality, lol. Mrs. Danvers handles that stuff anyway. She's, uh, well, she's a little uptight, but she's fine. Don't worry about it. It'll be fine. Spoiler alert, she should absolutely worry about it, and it will not be fine. In fact, the first thing Max does is curse Mrs. Danvers for gathering the full staff outside the manor to welcome them. Because that is the opposite of what Max wanted, because he didn't want the fuss and he knows it'll freak Cher out. But it's fine. Nothing to worry about. Also, when we finally see Mrs. Danvers for the first time, she's described as having a skull's face and a skeleton's body and shakes Cher's hand with cold, dead hands. But it's fine. Basically the Crypt Keeper. Yeah. <laughs> Not quite as chipper, though. Not quite as friendly and welcoming. <laughs> That's not the Crypt Keeper, that's Wario. Why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what she sounds like. You should just think about making Wario sounds every time she appears. Every time she walks into the room, she lets one loose. Yep. Yeah, she does. She also just farts like crazy. She bites you in strong jaws. <laughs> Just spoiler, she's going to eat the house. Yeah, I thought James Bond eats the house. Who do you think is James's mother? <gasps> Twist. They go inside, and there's a puppy named Jasper and a butler named Frith, and Cher plays with the puppy and also possibly the butler. Like, I don't know. And she remembers how awesome the honeymoon was and how happy Max seemed, and now this house is big and scary, but, you know, also hers. It's her house. Max is like, now go to the East Wing. That's your wing. Go make friends with Danvers. Go on. Go play. Go make friends. And we learn that Frith has been there since Max was a kid, but Danvers came to the house with Rebecca, aka wife number one, who she was with since Rebecca was a little kid. But I'm sure she and Cher, aka wife number two, will get along fine. Totally fine. And Cher's like, I know this is weird, but I want it to not be weird. Like, let's be friends. Also, you're still in charge of everything, because I have no idea what I'm doing. Cool. 
And Mrs. Danvers just says that Cher's rooms are not as nice as Rebecca's old rooms, so suck it. And Max asks later if they hit it off, and Cher's like, eh. Maybe. <laughs> Hard to tell. Yeah. Check later. Day one of Cher at Manderley. Max has vague business things to do, so Cher wanders around. She can't be in her room because it's being cleaned. She can't be in the library because it's cold and won't be lit with a fire until the afternoon and she's not allowed to light it herself in any way. Rebecca would always spend her mornings in the morning room. Duh. Yeah, like the sunroom. Yeah. What would she do there? Write letters, obviously. So Cher goes there and sits down. And writes the letter B. <laughs> well, she does realize that she doesn't know anyone to write letters to. And then she gets a phone call where, where someone angrily like is like, Mrs. DeWinter? And she's like, no, Mrs. DeWinter died last year. The person on the phone who is Mrs. Danvers is like, no, stupid, you're Mrs. DeWinter. <laughs> look, look at today's menu and pick sauces. Rebecca always picked sauces. Teriyaki. <laughs> no, that's the wrong sauce. Honey glaze. You're terrible at this. Rebecca mm. always picked the proper sauce. Sweet and sour. I suppose. Come. <laughs> yep, that's the one. That's the one. But Rebecca always knew right off the bat. Then uh, Max's sister Beatrice and her husband come over. And uh, on the way over to them, Cher gets lost and ends up in the, the West Wing and passes by what she realizes is Rebecca's. Martin Sheen. Yes. She passes by Martin Sheen in Rebecca's old room. And suddenly Danvers just fucking appears behind her, just like, hey, what's up? Looking for something? <laughs> Exploring. <laughs> Need me to show you around? And Cher's just like, Jesus, I'm get, gonna put a fucking bell on you. Anyway, uh, also there for lunch is Frank Crawley, who's like a, a business associate of Max's or something. He, he does like business things for Manderley. Uh, they all give their approval of Mrs. DeWinter Part 2, the sequel. And then in confidence, Beatrice tells Cher a bunch of weird red flag shit, like that Max rarely ever loses his temper, but when he does, uh-oh, watch out. Uh, also, Mrs. Danvers sure did love Rebecca, so uh-oh, watch out. Also, she asks Cher if she sails, and when she says no, Beatrice is like, yeah, that's probably for the best. I mean, at this point, we, we know that Rebecca drowned in the bay, but we don't know anything beyond that. But I guess it seems safe to assume it was probably while sailing a boat. Speaking of, after the guests leave, Max and Cher go for a walk with the dog who runs off towards the beach. And Max immediately gets weird, like, fuck the dog. Let's go. Cher's like, no. And goes to get him and finds a boathouse with no boat, but like a strange man who's like, that's not your dog. That's a dead lady's dog. She's at the bottom of the ocean. No, I'm Mrs. DeWinter now. I learned this earlier today on the phone. <laughs> she comes back and Max is just like, oh, that's Ben. That's the groundkeeper's son. He's just like that. Don't go in the boathouse because I said so. I'm not being weird. You're being weird. Also, my wife died here. We're fighting. Cher decides she fucking hates Manderley. End of day one. <laughs> it's a bad day. Then it rains for a week. Which could be thematic, or it could just be England. Hard to say. Everyone she talks to talks about how Rebecca was, like, pretty and good. I realize now, maybe we gotta start over. Why? Shouldn't it be Cher? It should be Paul Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it! 
<laughs> Why are you only realizing this now? PH. That would have been so good to think about this whole time. Oh, <laughs> I'll never be good enough to replace Rebecca. You'll never love me as much as her. <laughs> I'm the one who's underproved. <laughs> soggy bottom. Max, you're being a soggy bottom. <laughs> Everyone she talks to. Says you're Paul Hollywood. <laughs> Says you're Paul Hollywood. And Rebecca uh, was just so pretty. And so good at throwing parties and how the, the Manderly balls fucking ruled and she should bring those back. And she talks to Frank about it and Cher likes Frank and thinks he's easy to talk to because, quote, they're both dull. <laughs> Which is a really fucked up thing to say about someone. Like, we're both just so fucking bland and insipid. We talk so well together. Uh, she picks up that he might have been in love with Rebecca and also confirms that, yes, Rebecca did drown while out sailing in a storm and that her body wasn't found until two months later. Yikes. Sharon then has this, like, little pity party and is like, oh, everyone says how Rebecca is better than me. Wah, wah, compliment me. And Frank's like, that's not true. You're very kind and modest. <laughs> and... Mrs. De Winter. <laughs> you're, you're so Mrs. De Winter. <laughs> and she just looks at him with her cold, steely gray eyes and offers up a handshake. <laughs> and her black button-down shirt. <laughs> and blue jeans. And everyone goes, oh, you got the handshake. Oh, Frank got the handshake. And so uh, she says, Frank, you know, be, be straight with me. Well, she pretty... And Frank, not getting that Cher is fishing for him to be the opposite of honest, instead tells her, uh, and this is interesting, quote, Yes, I suppose she was the most beautiful creature I ever saw in my life. People just toss that around. Yeah, Daphne du Marie just tosses that around, I guess. Or maybe she was Tallulah Bankhead. Maybe. Or maybe Daph or Cher or Paul Hollywood. You see... <laughs> Really wish they could have been Tulula Bankhead. Mm. Lived up to that. Mm -hmm. And just felt they couldn't. Maybe. Oh, Bankhead. Mm -hmm. Ten year war hot. Anyway, the days go on, and mostly Cher just tries to stay out of Danvers's way. Uh, she doesn't take the dislike personally anymore because she correctly figures that Danvers would hate anyone coming in and replacing Rebecca. It's not really about her. But it's, it's tough being surrounded by Rebecca's shit every day, especially in the morning room. Then one day, she accidentally breaks one of those things. A little China Cupid thing. And it hides the pieces like the scared child she is. And then one of the servants gets in trouble for it, and she has to fess up, and Max is like, why didn't you just tell someone? And Cher has to be like, I'm scared of Mrs. Danvers. And Danvers, on cue, appears in a, a puff of smoke, most likely, saying that when... Hello! <laughs> Hello! Wah! <laughs> Saying that when Cher inevitably breaks shit in the future, she should just tell her. And also, that Rebecca never broke shit. Just saying. And Cher's just like, yeah, obviously I'm afraid of that. <laughs> and then they fight, and Max is like, maybe marrying you was a mistake. And Cher's just sad that she can't be more like Rebecca. Then Max goes away to London, and Cher's like, this is, this is actually better. 
takes the dog for a walk, ends up back in the boathouse, and sees Ben again, who tells her that she has angel eyes and isn't like the other lady, who reminded him of a snake and threatened to put him in an asylum because she caught him watching her. Whatever that means. And then he gives her a rock. <laughs> He's like, this is for you. I call him Rocky. She gets back to Manderley and sees an unfamiliar car and figures that Mrs. Danvers has a friend over while Max is gone. She bumps into him as they were clearly trying to sneak out and Danvers looks upset, but the strange dude she's with seems to think it's funny. He says his name's Jack Favell and that he was just leaving after seeing his good friend Danny. The vibes in the room are very bad. And, and Danvers gives him murder eyes and he's like, yeah, I'm gonna leave. Also, don't tell Max I was here. Uh, he doesn't like me. Don't ask why. No reason. Just be cool. But Cher's never cool. At least this Cher. Not like Cher the person. I, I don't know if she's cool or not. Uh, she goes into Rebecca's old room to look for clues. What kind of clues? I don't know. It's been carefully preserved and untouched since the day she died. Cher gets so wrapped up in looking at things, of course, she doesn't notice. The dildo. No, no, not the dildo. I mean, there might be a dildo in there. I mean, it, she would probably notice it. Pawn through Rebecca's stuff. No, who, who, who do you think she doesn't notice? Ben, who's always watching. <laughs> no, not Ben. Paul Hollywood, who could sneak up behind you. I thought she is Paul Hollywood. Or is she? Oh, it's very psychological. <laughs> no, although Paul Hollywood, I mean, if, if she was, she probably wouldn't be getting fucking snuck up on all the time by Mrs. Danvers. Oh, that bitch. You know, give me a wah. Wah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And uh, Cher says that Danvers is so close that her breath is literally on her face. <sighs> no, uh, yeah, it's good. Good Foley work. <laughs> and she's just like, you like the room? Nice, right? I used to brush Rebecca's hair here. So did Maxime. Does Maxime brush your hair? Her hmm? armpit hair. <laughs> yep, used to brush it out. Hmm, didn't think so. You want to hear about how fucked up Rebecca's body was after two months at sea? No, too bad, gonna tell you anyway. And she does. She says she can feel Rebecca in the room and in the house and hear her walking around and that the dead come back and watch the living. Okay, bye. This was nice. Let's do it again sometime soon. But remember, Max said it would be fine. Nothing to worry about. Beatrice comes by to visit, and Cher talks about Jack Favell coming by, and Beatrice says he's kind of a creep and was also Rebecca's cousin. And Max comes home, yells at Danvers for letting Favell in, and is still being weird with Cher. And sometime later, Cher finally commits to bringing back the famous Manderly costume ball, and everyone's like, hell yeah, and gets hyped as fuck. Because TV wasn't a thing yet. Costume party! Yeah. Except Max, who never wears costumes because he's boring. And Cher, who can't think of a costume. Or is he always wearing a mask? Mmm. Mmm. Are we all just always wearing a mask? Are we all in Pluto's cave? <laughs> Max keeps telling her to dress as Alice in Wonderland, but she thinks he's teasing her and also using a heavy-handed metaphor. Nah. Uh, she keeps trying to sketch out different ideas, and finally Danvers who's been avoiding her since getting yelled at about Jack Favell is like, look, I still hate you, but Rebecca never fucked up the balls, so you better not either. <laughs> Rebecca never fucked up the balls. <laughs> she knew how to hold them just right. <laughs> she would cradle that shit. 
If you need a costume so bad, maybe check out the paintings in the gallery for inspiration. Maybe the painting of the lady in the white dress. Hmm? Lady in white? Hmm? No reason. Just maybe that painting? Yeah? Look at that painting? Lady in the white dress? And share. For whatever reason, takes the advice of the clearly unstable woman who hates her guts. I don't know why she does that. But it goes about as well as you would expect. Thought she was, you know, coming clean. <laughs> She keeps the costume a secret, and on the night of the ball reveals herself, and wouldn't she know it, in the dress and the wig from the painting, Cher unknowingly has managed to make herself look exactly like... Paul Hollywood. Paul Hollywood. <laughs> Why, that's the dress that Paul Hollywood wore. <laughs> the scandal. Made her look like Cher. Yep. Young Cher. Yeah. Made her look like old Becky. Yep, old Becky. It's a case of oopsie-daisy-dead-wife cosplay. She cries as Beatrice explains it to her, and she realizes that Danvers did, well, exactly what you would have expected her to do, and eventually changes and comes back down. The guests think it was some kind of terrible gown mix-up, and Max is furious and confused, blah, blah, blah. The next day, she admits to herself that her marriage is a failure. Rebecca is all over Manderly, and Max will always love her more. God, can you blame him when he has to live with this fucking wet blanket? Max is MIA, but Cher finds Danvers and finally confronts her like, Well, you won. You fucking happy, but she's not. She's miserable. She hates Cher for being there. She hates Max for marrying someone else less than a year after Rebecca's death. She says that Max and Cher are weak shit, and that Rebecca had the strength of a boy, and should have been born a boy. That's interesting. And that horses were afraid of her. <laughs> Just a weird brag. <laughs> and that Max was jealous of Rebecca's friendship with her cousin, and also with Danvers. And you know what he should have been, because she had a bunch of lovers, and she was fucking all over the place. And specifically at the boathouse, which I guess is what Ben got caught watching. Danvers continues saying, not only did Rebecca fuck, she didn't love any of them. She didn't love anyone. She thought love was dumb and hated men and played them like a game. And Cher's like, please stop. I want off this ride. And keeps... <laughs> what is love? Baby, don't... That's not a Cher. So, so while we're dealing with Cher, it turns out Rebecca more Hathaway. <laughs> Perhaps. And she keeps backing up towards the open window of the room until her back is against it. And Danvers gets all up in her personal space again and is like... Nipple to nipple. Nipple to nipple. And is just like... <laughs> fucking jump, bitch. Nobody's gonna miss you. Which is like, Jesus. And then, you know, she, she, she considers it. But is interrupted by a distress signal from a boat stuck on a reef in the bay. And then when the divers on the boat are assessing the damage, they make a fun discovery. Any guesses, RJ? Dabloons. No. Better than Dabloons. Shares back catalog. <laughs> Mamma mia. Here we go again. That's not Cher. That ma, is. Ma. That's, we've been over this. That's ABBA. Yeah, she was in the movie. Okay, that doesn't make it a Cher song. Oh shit, Meg, I'm finding all the connections. What? Here's Bronson and was also in that movie. Oh my god, he's gonna eat the house. They find Pierce? <laughs> yeah, they find Pierce Brosnan hiding under the water, just waiting for his moment to eat the house. <laughs> but not James Bond, Pierce Brosnan. No. And not, not even Mamma not, Mia. Not Mamma Mia, Pierce yeah. Brosnan. Dante's Peak, Pierce Brosnan. That's a weird pull. 
My fans understand. Why do your fans understand 1995 Pierce Brosnan? They know Dante speak. I think that was 1995. The importance of homeowners insurance. <laughs> okay. Including catastrophic coverage. Well, speaking of catastrophic coverage, uh, they find Rebecca's boats. What? And also Rebecca. But they already found her. Yeah, uh, it turns out that body that washed ashore however long ago was not hers. Doll. So, some other lady. Who? I don't know. Don't worry about it. Yeah, they're all creatures in the end. <laughs> and uh, Cher's like, I know this is hard for you because you're really mad at me right now. And, and you love Rebecca so much. And Max is like, mm, yeah, about that. And reveals to Cher that actually Rebecca didn't so much drown as die from being shot because Max shot her. Oh, shit. And then put her body in her boat and sunk it in the bay. Uh-oh. And Cher's like, what? And Max explains that Rebecca was kind of horrible, actually. But their marriage was arranged by his grandma because she was old money and smart and pretty. But then they got married and she, like, revealed herself in the manner of a cartoon villain. Like, haha, actually, I am terrible. And then proceeded to be mean to Max and have sex with lots of men. This is all according to Max, by the way. Although Danvers' angry ranting sort of corroborates parts of it. But I mean, Rebecca seems to also be, you know, being put in an arranged marriage that she might not want to be in. Like, we don't know her side of it. Also, this is being filtered through Cher, who loves Max and is 21 and kind of stupid. You know, I'm just saying, like, critical thinking skills. Anywho, she and Max made a deal. In public, she'd act like the perfect wife and everyone would think she was great. And in private, she could be a weird little pervert who did what she liked. And Max figured he'd live with it, rather than have people know his marriage was a sham. And also, he can never divorce her, because the scandal. Except... Except... Except then she started getting too horny, and tried to seduce Frank, until Frank was like, Please stop, your wife is making me uncomfortable. And then she went after Max's sister's husband. And then she started bringing Jack around, and it turned out she was a dirty cousin fucker. And Max was like, all right, I, I can't do this anymore. You're not holding up your end of the deal. Like, I will divorce you. And Rebecca, according to him, was like, well, no, you won't, pussy. <laughs> <laughs> nah, you won't. Nah. <laughs> and no one would believe you anyway. Everyone thinks I'm great. If I had a kid, everyone would think it was yours. You'd have to pretend it was yours, and then they'd inherit this big, stupid house when you died. Hey, what if I was pregnant right now? And then he shot her. Boom. And sank the boat. And Cher listens to all this and is like, so you don't love Rebecca. <laughs> that's what she takes away from this story. Well, that's a relief. I was making myself miserable over that shit. All right, then. So only one of us thinks about Rebecca when we have sex. <laughs> and it's not you. Good to know. <laughs> and Max is just like, so we're good? And, and Cher, Cher's like, yeah, we're good. She's totally fine with murder, as long as he likes her. Because, like, yeah, her self-esteem is that low. Now she says the important thing is making sure Max doesn't get caught. You know, he just has to say he was so full of grief, he misidentified the other body. Easy peasy lemon squeezy. And Cher feels great. Learning her husband is a cold-blooded murderer has lifted such a weight off her shoulders. There's a pep in her step. She's got confidence. She's bullying Danvers. She's a she's whole... walking on sunshine. She is. She's a whole new woman. It's uh, 
It's pretty fucked up. <laughs> Meanwhile, this guy called uh, Colonel Julian is in charge of the newly reopened investigation, but, like, he's not that invested. And uh, he's at Manderley, like, I know this is a pain in the ass, Max. Sorry to make you go through it. Just just say you were sick. I mean, you saw the other bodies. It's whatever. Justice. It's different for people with money. Uh, but then it ends up in the papers, and, like, people start gossiping, and it becomes, like, a whole big thing anyway. And then, after inspecting Rebecca's boat, they find that clearly someone stabbed holes in it to sink it. Oops. Guess it's a murder case now. And things aren't looking good for Max, suddenly. And so they try to make the case that Rebecca... So it's clear that Rebecca didn't just drown on accident. And so they try to make the case that she committed suicide. That she she put the holes in the boat herself. That has happened. <laughs> you know, because that's, that's how you do it. But Jack Favell has a secret. A dark secret. Kind of. I went to see a woman doctor. Well, no, no. I said oh, ja- Jack. What? What? <laughs> You're kidding. No, it's a Jack Favell has a secret. He has a note. Oh. He has a note from Rebecca that he's been hiding. That she wrote on the day of her death that was like, hey, come up to Manderley. I got something to tell you. And he's like, would someone who's going to commit suicide do this? write the note whoa but he doesn't necessarily want justice he wants revenge no oh money even better (laughs) he wants to blackmail max and share and also he's he's drunk and also him and rebecca were fucking which we already kind of knew and then we find out about the doctor thing in London that you were already starting to say, which is Dr. Uh, Baker. So then Max, Jack Favell, Cher, and Colonel Julian all go to this doctor's house because we learn that Rebecca went to go see a Dr. Baker in London because they assumed that she went because she was pregnant. But then they get there. And Dr. Baker's like, I'm not that kind of doctor. I'm not a, a, a baby's doctor. I'm a cancer doctor. Oh, shit. It turns out Rebecca had uterine cancer. Get those pap smears. So they decide that the official story is going to be, wow, so she had cancer. I guess that's why she killed herself, so she wouldn't have to suffer. And they make it very clear. Like Max even says afterwards, like, Colonel Julian must know, and he's helping cover it up. And Jack Favell's just like, he's very upset because he's lost his chance at blackmail. And he's like, I'll still figure out a way to get you. And Max punches him in the face because rich people can do what they want. So the truth of the matter, I guess, is that Rebecca was like, I don't want to continue on suffering from cancer, but also I want to fuck with Max one last time before I die. So she combined these two activities together and goaded Max into shooting her. Good move. It's a power move, I guess. Almost like Svengali. <laughs> she svengali her, her way into suicide murder. I don't know. And so 
Cher and Max drive off, basically scot-free. Well, was there a Scott in the car or not? If there's not a Scott in the car, it was scot-free. Yeah, they're scot-free. Oh, all right. Colonel Julian does say, like, you you should probably get out of town for a while, though. You should probably go to, like, Switzerland or something. And so they, like, drive away. They have, like, a nice lunch. They eat some lobster. And Shara's just like, this lobster rules. Fuck Rebecca. (laughs) This is awesome. They get a call from Frith that Danvers has disappeared from Manderley, that she got a long-distance call, probably from Jack the Bell, about the events, and that, yeah, she has fucked off the ground. She packed up her stuff and left. And Cher's just like, good riddance! This lobster's delicious! And uh, Max is like, this this feels kind of weird. I want to drive back to Manderley. And Cher's like, yeah, okay, fine, I guess. So they drive back. And it's kind of late in the evening, and he's just like, we're going to drive all night. And Cher's like, all right, I'm going to sleep in the back seat." And she has very weird dreams the whole drive back. And she finally wakes up, and it's about 2 in the morning. And she's like, oh, but I think I can see the sunrise. That's weird, but it's 2 a.m. And she says to Max, like, oh, are those, like, the northern lights? This time of year? In this part of England? (laughs) Localized to Manderley Estate? May I see it? No. Because that's not what it is. No. It's Manderley. And then we just get this line that, like, the sky on the horizon is not dark at all. It is shot with crimson, like a splash of blood, and the ashes blow towards us with the salt wind from the sea. And that's how the book ends? With the assumption being that Manderley has been set on fire. That's where Dante's Peak is. The volcano was erupting. It was coming out of the ground. Yes. It was magma. And, um, you know, we know that uh, Manderley is not around anymore. And, you know, you can use your context clues to assume that Danvers has probably gone off the shits and burned it to the fucking ground. Uh, So, yeah, they did get away with murder, but... You know, they did not get out un- unscathed, I suppose. And then James Bond eats the house, I guess. The end! <laughs> and that's Rebecca. So a couple things about Rebecca. It is said that Manderley is the fictional equivalent of a real-life home that Daph lived in in Cornwall known as Menabilly. It's established in the Hitchcock film that Rebecca takes place in Cornwall. Daph loved Menabilly. When she found it, it was in need of some care and a renovation or two. She wrote fondly about the estate, and the fact that she may have adapted it into her novel is not surprising. Menabilly has had quite the history. It was originally built in the late 1500s. Megan, try to imagine living in a house that was built over 500 years ago. I can't. One thing that annoyed Daph about some people's reading of Rebecca is that they read it as a romance. Uh, No! It really startled her that people seemed to think that she'd written a romantic novel. She believed Rebecca was about jealousy and all the relationships in it, including the marriage between De Winter and his shy second wife, were dark and unsettling. For example, take that line, I'm asking you to marry me, you little fool. Hardly a love between equals. I mean, I was about to be like, yeah, no, like, how could you, this is not romantic, but we're going to talk about the Netflix adaptation, I guess. Some of the ideas of the novel arose from her own jealousy towards the woman who her husband had been engaged to before her. She had looked at their love letters between them 
and felt painfully aware of her own shortcomings as a woman and a wife. Other parts of Rebecca were adapted from Daft's personality. She apparently saw parts of second Mrs. De Winter and herself. Daft was known for being shy with maids and servants and generally aloof with being part of large estates in the role that the second Mrs. De Winter found herself in. Later in life, Daft remarked that, quote, what is past is also future. In 1957, her husband, Major Browning, had a breakdown and was discovered to have been having two affairs at the same time. Daft wrote a letter in which she speculated how her own life had become entangled with Rebecca's. Was her husband identifying with Rebecca, she wondered, in a riding hut with the sinister cottage on the beach? Would he shoot her in a blind access of rage and take her body out on their beloved boat? He wound up not doing that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, the first adaptation of Rebecca for any medium was as a radio play by Orson Welles on December 9th, 1938. And at the conclusion of the show, he actually interviewed Dumarais in London via shortwave radio, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, it was adapted into a film by Alfred Hitchcock, obviously in 1940. It was actually the first movie uh, he made in Hollywood, and it was a massive critical and commercial hit. It received 11 Academy Award nominations, more than any other film that year, and it won Best Picture and Best Cinematography. Because of like the strict Hollywood guidelines at the time, otherwise known as the Hayes Code, part of which was the mandate that if someone does the bad thing, we have to see them get punished for it. Hitchcock had to make some plot changes and Matt's shooting his wife, like, because otherwise we would have had to have seen Max get punished for shooting his wife. It, it becomes oopsie-daisy Rebecca fall down from being yelled at too hard. <laughs> also, uh, we have to actually see Miss Danvers die in a fire so that we know she got what was coming to her. Because, you know, 1940 Hollywood thought its audience was fucking stupid. Much like 2020, but, you know, we'll get there. Uh, also, just like a little quick trivia tidbit, just to remind everyone that Alfred Hitchcock was a dickhead. Because Sir Lawrence Olivier wanted his then-girlfriend Vivian Lee to play the lead role, he treated the lead actress Joan Fontaine horribly. This shook Fontaine up quite a bit, so director Alfred Hitchcock, you know, you know how your response to this? Not, like, by telling uh, Lawrence Olivier to stop being an asshole. No, he's like, I can use this. He takes Joan Fontaine, he tells her everyone on set hates her to make her shy and uneasy and get the performance from her that he wants. Use it. <laughs> what a fucking asshole. So, the Netflix movie came out just a few days ago at the time of this recording. Uh, which is why we uh, we were going to do this episode earlier, and we waited so we could watch the movie and we could do Synergy. Uh, is not good. <laughs> it stars uh, Lily James as unnamed protagonist, a.k.a. Cher, a.k.a. Paul Hollywood, a.k.a. Mrs. DeWinter Part 2, the sequel, and Army Hammer as uh, Max... As Maxine. the man in the yellow hat. This is Maxine de Winter. He, he wears a, a very yellow suit. Um, actually, the outfits in the movie were probably the best part of the movie. It looked good. <laughs> yeah. She is now a likable, uh, plucky protagonist who, along with a, a Maxine that's less a icy, detached, brooding sort of gothic weirdo and more of a big, pissy golden retriever, saves the day defeats Danvers and the evil specter of Rebecca with the power of love and also a little bit of murder. But whatever, it's fine. Don't think too much about it. Like the thing you just said about how she was so disturbed about people reading it as a romance. 
This movie reads it as a romance. What a quirky one. <laughs> it, it literally ends with them being like just like yeah like i, I dreamt of manderly but then i woke up and i realized that i was with the love of my life and they kiss and they're just like haha we did it like she danvers doesn't disappear at the end like she literally uh tells danvers off and and is just like leave mrs danvers like you have no more power here go away it's something also, she, like, breaks Max out of jail. She finds the doc, like, the doctor and, like, steals the medical records that prove that Rebecca had cancer. Yeah. <laughs> it's now, Rebecca is now an empowering feminist narrative. That's right. As it was always meant to be. The new Mrs. DeWinter's a girl boss. <laughs> For aiding and abetting a murderer. And we do see Mrs. Danvers set the fire. And then she jumps off a cliff and drowns herself. Goodbye. <laughs> Wah. Because it's like nineteen, it's like nineteen forty all over again. We got to see her get punished for it. Because <laughs> we, as an audience, are dumb as hell. It's a bad movie, and not even really in a fun way. Mostly just kind of in a boring way. But here's the thing, though. Much like Goosebumps Live on stage, I've, I've been leading you on, actually, because you want to talk about unfaithful adaptations? You want to talk about getting done dirty? Turns out the person who did Daphne du Maurier the most dirty was Daphne du Maurier. Oh, shit. Yeah. So I didn't even know this when we watched the movie. I was just compiling adaptations because that's the thing I do last. So Damari herself adapted Rebecca as a stage play in 1939. And it did gangbusters in London in 1940, where it had a run of over 350 performances. And then Wikipedia has this little note about how it had some differences from the book. Quote, including changing the iconic ending of the novel. Mm-hmm. Yes, Wikipedia, I will be clicking the footnote link to learn more. And it took me to an anthology on adaptation and textual infidelity in contemporary culture that had this academic paper in it called Origin and Ownership, Film and Television Adaptations of Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca, written by, appropriately enough, Rebecca de Monte. Ooh. Whoa. Yeah. Anyway, the changes du Maurier made are fucking wild. But what's equally fascinating is why she did them. So uh, some of the things make sense because it's on a, a stage where it says, quote, the interiority of the young woman is replaced by dialogue between all the characters. The necessity of the play deals with the narrative rather than the subtleties of underlying emo uh, emotions. Because the set is confined to the drawing room in keeping with a number of other plays at the time, several crucial scenes are left out or altered. You know, not that much weird things. Quote, radically, there is no dramatic fire which destroys Manderley. Instead, Mrs. Danvers attempts to threaten the De Winters, but her power has been dispelled. And as she is the one to be banished, husband and wife reunite in the family home where they will remain to weather the gossips rather than going abroad. So they win. <laughs> Yeah. They, they, they make Mrs. Danvers leave, and they're like, this is our home now, we win. Goodbye. And Manderley doesn't get destroyed. Yeah, as the novel's framework of the exiled, uh, exiled couple has been cut for dramatic simplicity, the bringing together of the couple at the finale follows through those conventions of romance that Du Maurier was at pains to eschew in the novel. 
The critics of the time were certainly reassured by her new ending, which they felt was in tune with the turbulent time, so as husband and wife stand together in perfect accord at the aristocratic Manderley unravaged. Uh, the audience are faced with a potent symbol of Englishness at a time of renewed nationalistic pride, because it was uh, propaganda stressing the importance of English culture, because it was at the time with the, the outbreak of war and it was just as Norway and Denmark had been invaded by like Germany and so people wanted yay England so she like refashioned the ending to make it like super conventional for a yay England because that's what people wanted in 1940. Yay England. They did not want a story of quote fractured identity dangerous sexuality and the decline of the aristocratic house. <laughs> that's not what people were feeling at the moment. So I just think it's crazy that it was like the thing that was actually the the most unfaithful to her original story was her. <laughs> Ooh. 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 And that brings us to the part of the show that we always get to, and that is Hey RJ. What's up? Rebecca. Good or bad? I mean, I guess Rebecca's good. Nice and spoopy. Has a good twist in it. Don't see that one coming. I'll be <laughs> honest, not even in the movie. <laughs> so that's inventive. Has anyone else used cervical cancer as a as a swerve? <laughs> Not that I know of. I suppose it does do a lot with identity and sexuality. You kind of didn't talk much about how like Dame versus over all about touching, touchy feely, touching people's bodies, touching women's bodies, women on women action. That's like a I lot of it's there. Well, I did say that Danvers is constantly in her personal space. I did say that she is. Always right on top of her, breathing on her, and talking about how she used to brush Rebecca's hair and all that stuff. Like, you, you could talk about there being, like, a weird sexual element between her and Rebecca, but then it's, like, really, but I don't know if there is. There is. It's really fucking gross because she said she's literally been with Rebecca since Rebecca was a child. I think it's more supposed to be implied that she instilled bad morals into Rebecca, that she taught her to go off and, like, Fuck a bunch of dudes or something. So yeah, a lot going on. I like it. Hey, Megan. Yeah, Becky. Good or bad? I would say good. I think part of what's interesting is when you say the twist, you could be referring to several different things. Mm -hmm. There's a few swerves. That Maxime killed his wife. That uh, instead of being uh, horrified by this, our protagonist is like, nah, I'm cool with it. And then that Rebecca wasn't pregnant and had the cancer. And then the tweet, you know, that, Mander that Danvers fucking burns manually to the ground. Like, there's a lot going on. I think that Mrs. Danvers is not talked about enough as just being absolutely terrifying in terms of, like, contemporary female villains in fiction. Like, that, she should be up there with, like, Nurse Ratchet from, like, One Floor Over the Cuckoo's Nest or, like, I don't know, Lady from Misery or something. Like, damn, she's scary. Put Mrs. Danvers in Dead by Daylight. <laughs> yeah, gonna hunt you down. Yeah, she's coming for you. I'm, I'm glad I, I know about it now because I've never fucking heard of it before. 
That will about do it for this episode of Oh No Lit Class. I hope you enjoyed this, our most spookiest of seasons, this wonderful Halloween month, my favorite part of every year. And if you enjoyed it, leave, leave us a rating, review, subscribe, tell everybody about the show, spread the word, tell your family, tell your friends, tell your, your first wife, your second wife, that housekeeper who's probably plotting to murder you, be like, hey... Before you set my house on fire, before you let James Bond eat the house, check out this podcast. It's real cool. You can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Ono Lit Class Pod. You can do all kinds of wonderful and amazing things and follow your dreams all at onolitclass.com. Our next episode will be on November 12th. A lot of shit's gonna happen in between then. There will have been an election. I'll, I'll have had a birthday. But until then, I'm Megan. I'm RJ. We love you. Bye. It's still just a gross phrase. I'm sorry. Providence, you're a beautiful creature. See, even he angled his head away from you when you said it.